Welcome, everybody, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And today we're very fortunate to have with us Chris Williamson. He's the project director for Chasing Earhart, and we've spoken with Chris before. If anybody's on top of Earhart news, it's Chris. And we have some things we'd love to go over with him today. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. There's been a lot of news uh, circulating in the media about a plane that's been found uh, off the coast of New Guinea. I was hoping you could update our listeners as to what's going on with that. Sure, sure. To the best of my ability, I will be happy to do that. So there is a potential aircraft that has been located by a gentleman by the name of Bill Snavely. He is the director of Project Blue Angel, and they are investigating a, a potential wreckage in an aircraft debris field, an underwater aircraft debris field, off the coast of Buka. And it's a, it's a site that has, it's not new. It's something that has been circulating within the Earhart community for a little while. Now, it's, it's relatively new compared to most of the other hypotheses that are out there. I mean, it's been, been around for a while, but Bill Snavely himself has been investigating the wreckage for approximately the last 15 years or so. And the, the wreckage has been, has been dived on uh, you know, a handful of times by other folks, people that are locals to the island and some other people that have been out there years and years prior that have, that have dived on the wreck and the wrecked site. And Bill has been sort of studying this from afar, trying to figure out if this particular aircraft has any consistencies with the Lockheed Electra 10E that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were in when they vanished over the Pacific Ocean. So he started with this hypothesis. He thought that this plane, you know, if it shared some consistencies, we might have something to look at here. So a very long time ago, he spoke with one of the locals on the island. And while he was actually out there visiting, and they had mentioned to him, you know, hey, there actually is a, an aircraft that really has really a big question mark on it. We don't know the origin of the aircraft. We don't know how it got here. We have a story, but we don't know if it's factual or anything like that. And Snavely had been, of course, looking for Earhart at that point, and he had been retracing the route from Ley, New Guinea to Howland Island in that area, in that general area. And he asked them to check out a handful of consistencies, potential consistencies. He gave them, you know, all these different things to look for. It's four or five of them. Twin, uh, twin tail, twin engine, you know, about the, about the same uh, length, about the same width, you know, a couple other things. And he said, you know, check those out. And if any of those happen to match or be consistent or be close or even in the ballpark, let me know and we'll sort of take it from there. And as fate would have it, several weeks later, he received an email back from the gentleman who he spoke with. And the gentleman informed him that not only do one of those match, but all five of those, of those consistencies match that plane. And so that got Bill Snavely very curious at that point. So he has started to work on this hypothesis for quite some time. And he started doing the math and working things out and kind of working backwards and trying to figure out how this plane may may have ended up in this spot and that's kind of how project blue angel sort of came about it happened fairly recently they went out on a dive actually he appeared on our on our discussion panel or chasing Earhart panel last year in atchison kansas during the amelia Earhart festival he was actually on that panel he presented that that hypothesis to the world really for the first time on that panel and he had recently again as fate would have it recently had gotten the green light 
from the government of Buka to go out there. This is before, uh, just in July of 18, to go out there in August of 18, a month later, and do the first official dive. So he had uh, a few people, very, very, you know, um, very skilled people. Uh, we had Richard Pruitt, who is, you know, just a really a master at, of, of liaison and kind of work. He's worked previously with Tiger and worked for the uh, State Department for many years. He went out there, part of this part of the team. He had Stephanie Gordon, who runs Open Boat Films. She's a professional uh, director of cinematography. She's had her stuff featured in a lot of different documentaries and things. And they had Tracy Wildricks, who's a, a professional metallurgist and among many other things, Tracy wears many hats. They went out there and they dove with a couple of local divers out there. Um, and they had some pretty good results. They, they brought back some, some information. They brought back some data. They brought back a, a landing light, a landing light lens that they feel might very well be that of a Lockheed Electra 10E landing light. They're, they're still getting that investigated and st still trying to get that vested right now. And they had since just recently announced and recently completed a second dive. We don't know any information about the second dive as far as what the results of that dive were, were they able to find any other artifacts or anything, we don't know. That's going to be up to them to put out in the future. But we do know that on the second dive, they took along Mike Orange, um, and Mike Orange had a, a an ROV with them, and uh, Mark's, Mike Orange is from Boxfish Research, and um, I believe it's in New Zealand, Australia or New Zealand. He went out there, uh, and they actually took an ROV out and took some really high-res scans of the wreckage, potential wreckage. It's very, very much so buried in coral, 82 plus years of coral. It's gotten really bad in the last 15 years or so. And so they're just trying to potentially reveal what this plane is, whose this plane was, trying to figure out if it, if, if it in fact was Amelia Earhart's plane. It's very possible that it could have been, but it's also very possible that it could be a Lockheed Ventura or something very similar. So Bill is not saying, yes, this is a slam dunk yet, and by any stretch of the imagination, he's saying, look, I, I believe it's consistent, it shares some consistencies with, with the plane she flew, and that's all we know right now. And so that's kind of where we're going, and it's really the, the really exciting thing at, about all this is it's the first time in the history of the investigation that someone actually has found a plane that is actually shares some consistency, if any at all, yeah, and uh, that's true. exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah, it is, it is exciting. It's also good that people are keeping an open mind about every discovery that comes up, and there's so many people trying to find an answer to this. According to so so many theories, and according to radio transmissions that they caught uh, on the Coast Guard Cutter Itasca near Howland Island, uh, about, what, 2,600 miles away from this particular mm -hmm. location that they're searching now, that they were mm -hmm. getting clear as a bell transmissions from her in those last hours. Would it be possible sure. to get those kinds of transmissions if they had indeed gone down off the coast of New Guinea? Sure, and the answer is no. The, the The short answer to that question is no. They would absolutely not have been able to. You know, there is skip there. There is there is some things and things to factor in there. I'm not an expert at that. Some of the people that are on our shows are experts at that. So that's really a question better directed for them. But I can tell you without hesitation that it would not have been physically possible for them to be pulling consistently pulling S5s if they were ending if they actually were in in fact in Buka. So that raises the question, how did they get to Buka if this is her plane? If he happens to be right about this and they absolutely get they get some kind of absolute confirmation on this. And you know whether it's by serial number or you know take your pick whatever however way they can they can gain some kind of absolute clarity on this. 
I, you know, I've told Bill this in the past when we've had private calls and things, I've told him, look, that's going to, that's not the ending. That's going to be just a brand new beginning for you. Cause now you're going to mm-hmm. have to figure out, you're going to have to explain how in the hell did this plane get all the way over here? <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's, you're opening up a whole, you might be closing the book on one mystery and opening up a whole can of worms on something totally different. So I, I have that same, you know, I have that same, um, that same pause that you mentioned, you know, how are, that's my main concern with this hypothesis. They're pulling S fives. They're constantly pulling S fives. Leo Bellard said on our very own show that he stepped outside the radio station, expecting to see the electron on the horizon, expecting to hear it. It was that close. It felt that close. So obviously Buka is nowhere near Howland Island. So how is that the case? But the Marshall Islands are also nowhere near Howland Island. So, you know, this is one of those 400, theories. 400 miles north, uh, 400 right. miles north, correct? 400 miles north, actually closer to 800 miles north, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And you have also, we've also confirmed, we've talked to multiple people that have said, yes, you'd have to be within about a 200-mile range to pull an S5. So even if it was 400 miles north, they're, far, they're too far out to pull S5s. That would that, be like That's the, the strength S4 of territory. signal, right? S5? Is that what you're Correct. talking about? Yeah. Correct. Signal strength 5. So the signal strength 5... Basically, they, they go it up. They, they go on a one to five scale, depending on how close you are. If it's if you're 200 miles or closer, you're going to pull S fives. Anything out beyond 200 miles out, you're going to be pulling S fours, S threes, S two, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where you know we were just talking to a guest the other day, and he said, "I have no reason to, to disbelieve the people who were there, i.e., Leo Bellars, people that were on the Atasca." The data and the facts so far seem to line up with what they're saying, that she was in that vicinity, and she did, she did go down in that vicinity. But on the other hand, we have consistencies here. We have something, we have an aircraft wreckage site that's screaming to be investigated at. And so that's what Bill's doing, and he, he believes that the wreckage should be investigated, whether or not it is Earhart and Noonan's or whether or not it's just some random person. He believes that they have they have a duty and in, in, in a, in a really, um, a, I guess the duty is the best way to say it. they have a duty and a, um, a right to go in there and actually determine who this was and to, to tell the story and to put an end on whoever flew that aircraft, whether it was a military aircraft, a civilian aircraft, or whether it ends up being the Holy grail of aviation. We don't know. We're going to find out. Bill is one of the only people ever in this case, not only to have, He's the only guy to ever have an airplane investigate, but he's also one of, going to be the only person to ever have whose hypothesis is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an ending. He's going to have his ending. He's going to find out what plane that was and who was in that plane. It's just a matter of when, and it's just a matter of how they go about, go about doing it. That's fantastic. Can you kind of just quickly remind our readers what the major hypotheses are out there with regard to Earhart and Noonan's disappearance? You know, yeah, where, sure. you know where we stand at 1001 Heroes. We're crashing capture all the way. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, so there's five. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm going to tell you five and I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you as, as we've described them, as we're presenting them in Vanished Amelia Earhart and as we've been presenting them in Chasing Earhart and all this other stuff. And some people are going to disagree with what I'm about to say because some people will, will believe that some of these don't even deserve to be looked at. I respectfully disagree. The first one is obviously the foundational piece, crash and sink. That's the official story of the United States government. So they, they believe Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were indeed within striking distance of Howland Island. 
they were fairly close, whether they're off, you know, off to the north, off to the south. They couldn't find Howland Island. Everybody agrees, regardless of the theory. Cross theory, one of the facts that is actually accepted cross theory is that Howland Island is almost an impossibility to find. It's really, really tight. It's a really tiny island. So the crash and, crash and sink hypothesis, or, or ditch and sink, depending on you know, who you talk to, states that they had to put the plane down in the ocean. They ran out of fuel. And they're somewhere around 200 to 200 miles off the shores of Howland Island in that vicinity. And that the plane rests approximately 18,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. Very long way. The plane's about 39 and a half feet. So finding it is literally like finding a speck in the middle of the ocean. So that's the crash and sink theory in a nutshell. That they ran out of, they ran out of fuel. They ended up down in the water. The second theory... And this is a no particular order of importance or credence or anything. But the second theory is known as the castaway theory. And that has been pushed by the International Group of Historic Aircraft Recovery, TIGER for short. You've probably heard that name before if you're an avid Earhart, uh, either a historian or researcher, you know the name TIGER. A lot of television documentaries on Nikumararu. Right. A lot of documentaries, a lot of footage, a lot of, um, lot of media attention, a lot of that. They're... Um, They've been in the news for a long time. They've been they've been working the island of Nicomaroro. Uh, it was actually known as Gardner Island at the time. So we, in the show, we often we often refer to it in the past tense as Gardner Island because that's what it would have been at the time that Earhart and Noonan landed on it. If they did, they believe that Earhart and Noonan, having not been able to locate um, Howland Island, ended up coming upon Nicomaroro Island, Gardner Island, and they ended up putting the plane down on the uh, coral atoll there. And this is where a lot of the post-loss radio signal stuff comes in, which Tiger's done an excellent job of compiling all these and working through the science and working through the data. And this basically states that they landed on the atoll there, the plane was put down in relatively decent condition, and that the radio was in relatively functional condition. And for about six days, they were able to send out radio distress signals that were never answered, but heard by a variety of sources. We don't know if Noonan died um, you know, on impact or if whatever the case, if they had to put the plane down rough and he died on impact or if he died shortly after. We do know, according to them, that Noonan may have, in fact, been injured, or even according to some of the radio signals, Earhart may have been, been injured. Or, I'm sorry, Noonan may have been injured. But if we look at it like Air, Noonan was injured for a little while and, and he ended up dying shortly after that, Earhart was a castaway at that point on the island, waiting for rescue, and had a little campsite, lived for we don't know how long. Some people say that she could live for a couple weeks. Some people say she could live for a couple of months. People that argue against the castaway hypothesis would say that she could have lived almost indefinitely on that island because of the food and the ability to kind of live off the land there. But for the sake of pushing that particular hypothesis, it goes that she, so, she eventually died, succumbed to hydration or you know other things that might have happened and she died on that island so that's that's the castaway theory if we're looking at this like a jury trial case which is what we're doing with vanished amelia Earhart, and i, and I was going to get to that i was i was going to have you tell our viewers exactly what you're doing with that yeah yeah it's, it's it's a lot of fun we're it's got a lot of unexpected buzz but and we'll definitely get to that but if you're looking at this as a jury trial case and you're you're everybody's presenting their evidence with everything that Tiger has, and Tiger's got a lot of evidence, circumstantial evidence, and people are put in prison over circumstantial evidence. So, I mean, it, you can't tell me that circumstantial evidence isn't credible. I mean, it, the courts determine that it is every single day. So, 
you have a mountain of circumstantial evidence that Tiger's built. Building a case is like building a house, and they've been building their house for over 30 years now. But I think if you were to look at all the evidence they have, really the, the standout piece that they have are, are, is the post-loss radio signals. And so to give everybody an idea, um, so it's, I think it's early in the afternoon on July 2nd in 1937. So the, 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 the Navy office in San Francisco put out uh, an all ships, all stations bulletin, and they announced that the Lockheed Electra had it failed to show up. It never showed up at Howland Island, and it was presumed down at sea. So at the time, it was assumed that the plane could transmit if it was afloat. So if it was in the water, a lot of people believed the plane would have been like a ping pong ball with wings. And at the time, they assumed it could still transmit on the radio, even if it was on the water. And so that Earhart could give them the, you know, they could give the position they could be picked up. So on the following days and nights, everyone listening, there were two uh, frequencies, two primary frequencies that people were listening on. One of them was 3105 and one of them was 6210 kilohertz. Okay. Now, by international agreement at the time, only U.S. registered aircraft were permitted to send voice signals on those. Okay. So the only exception there was the Coast Guard cutter Atasca, which they had special permission to try to contact Earhart in any way they could. Because at that point, they were they were they were scared. I mean, it was it was a really big deal. Um, so they kept trying to trying to contact. Now there's 57 credible post-loss receptions that were heard by the U.S. government or uh, professional commercial operators that were listening on on those primary frequencies I mentioned earlier. So they included now these in, they included um, was the U.S. Navy, U.S. Coast Guard, Royal Navy radio men aboard ships, uh, uh, just just a bunch of different people. Uh, American uh, U.S. Coast Guard headquarters in Honolulu. Licensed amateurs that were employed by the U.S. Department of Interior um, on Howland and Baker Islands, Pan, Pan Am, Pan American um, Airways radio direction finding stations on Oahu, Midway, Wake Islands. I mean, get, you get the idea. Yeah, and I'm, a lot I'm of, looking at the messages uh, that the Pan Am radio operator on Wake Island received and noted. And right. I mean, it, there was a lot to it. Uh, right. Quite down, yeah. but radio still working. Battery weak. We are uh, we're calling on 3105 kilocycles. Give me a long right. call, K-H-A-Q-Q. Those were her call numbers. She said uh, she put them at uh, bearing uh, 337, 58 minutes above equator. Must be a new island, she said. And the Pan Am guy took a DF fix, and he got a, a three. That signal was coming three to 400 miles northwest of Howland. Yeah. Yeah. That so put it on Mele Atoll. Right. Yeah. So that's that's what. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. I'm not going to kind of go into that. That's, you know, you're, you kind of just, you know, you kind of explained it perfectly there. So um, some people believe that, so really the post-loss radio signals, it really deter, it really depends on where did these all coincide? Now, Tiger is going to state that they coincided Gardner Islands, that's which, which is in the Phoenix Islands. If you look at Oahu, uh, the HMS Achilles, um, Nehru, Wake, Midway, Howland, Baker, the, where the Itasca was out, and you coordinate, they all they all hit a single spot. That's Gardner Island. Now that's according to Tiger's research and their information. Now, of course, the stuff that you just read actually disputes that. Says, well, this actually end, actually ends up being over there in Millie Atoll. This is where it actually was. So that's therein kind of lies the rub. There, there's a lot of people that dispute where these actual transmissions originated from, where they actually track backwards to, and that's kind of. Uh, you know, kind of the fun part when it comes to the radio, the post-loss radio signals. We know that they existed. This isn't something that Tiger made up. This isn't something that was something that they just did to, uh, 
you know, to throw more um, fuel on the fire for their stuff. This is something that was actually, you know, this actually happened. So, th- so when you look at that, that really sort of kind of puts uh, the kibosh on the crash and sink hypothesis a little bit. Not saying that that's not what ended up happening, but if they did go down in the ocean, and we do know that the radio could not transmit if it was underwater, or if there was, if there was, that's why they couldn't, Tiger argues that they had to transmit when the tide was low, even on Nicomaroro, because when the tide went high, the radio was useless. When the tide dropped back to low, they could transmit. So, so even Tiger, you know, they argue that, they, they agree with that, I should say. Um, if they ended up floating, in the ocean or they ended up being in the ocean then these radio signals couldn't have happened from that standpoint it's a physical impossibility everybody seems to uh, agree with that so that sort of makes things very interesting because then you have to look at these radio signals where they originate from walk them backwards and some people will say gardner island some people will say just like you mentioned uh atoll and therein we have the third hypothesis which is the japanese capture hypothesis which i don't really need to go into a whole lot because your listeners will know about the japanese capture hypothesis it's one of the oldest ones out there it's been it's been circulated for a very long time there's there is a an, an immense amount of information that's contained under that umbrella and we could do well we have <laughs> chasing your heart's a perfect example we've done a dozen at least a couple of dozen shows on the japanese capture hypothesis and we're about to do we're about to put it on trial here in a, in a, in a few more parts of uh, Vanished, and it's one of those ones that's very interesting. You have all these eyewitnesses. Um, we know that eyewitness testimony can be askew. We know that it can't be reliable in a lot of cases. We know that people have false memories, false witnesses. There's all kinds of stuff that would that would negate Jap, uh, that would negate eyewitness testimony as being anything more than less than credible. Let's just put it that way. However, when you have over 200 eyewitnesses that are unrelated, that put someone or something in a specific position, people go to jail for murder for that every day for a one eyewitness saying that this person was here. When you have 200 of them, and some of these people have a very high stature, it's, you, you cannot ignore that. That's, that's something you cannot ignore. You have to investigate that. You have to look at that. Now, a lot of those witnesses you can probably dismiss. I'll, I'll give you that. You can probably look at a lot of those people and say they either made it up or they either it was either it's either considered hearsay because they heard a bunch of people talking about it. They wanted to be involved. They can create false memory. We have expert witnesses coming on. They're actually that are that are world-renowned experts in false memory. They're going to testify. That are going to talk about how that applies to criminal proceedings and things like that. But to automatically just dismiss all 200 eyewitnesses, including Admiral Chester Nimitz, including the military that saw them, including all that stuff, to, to just throw it out without any regard is, in my opinion, not smart. Well, you just can't do that. So that's that's kind of what we're going to be doing with, with Vanish and what we have been doing. But it's it's one of those things where that particular hypothesis, hypothesis number three, Japanese capture, is one that's it's not going to go away anytime soon. Good explanation. Let's go to four. So four is, I've always maintained that four is sort of a, an extension of Japanese capture. It's almost like, if, if, if you remember those choose-your-own-adventure books when you were little, <laughs> and you had the hero of the story, you get to basically determine how that hero's story ends. 
Do they end? Does it end in tragedy? Does it end in you know success? All that good stuff. I liken this next one to that. This is known as the Irene Bolum hypothesis, and it's one of those ones that I think of all of the theories that are out there, and this includes Japanese capture. This includes everything of all of them that are out there. This particular theory, if proven true, has the biggest ability to rewrite history of anything that's out there when it comes to Amelia Earhart. Because the Irene Bolum hypothesis essentially states that Amelia Earhart did in fact get, get captured by the Japanese and did spend time in Japanese capture, in Japanese custody rather. And... Instead of dying in Garapan prison alone, instead of dying of dysentery, instead of being executed on, on, on Saipan and, and buried in a shallow grave or a deep grave, depending on who you talk to, she actually lived in captivity for several years. And when, when the liberation occurred, Amelia Earhart was actually successfully repatri ex extradited back to the United States and repatriated into the United States. Now, it sounds very far-fetched at first. But when you look at the evidence and the people that support that theory, again, you have to give it some kind of credibility. And the reason why I say that is because of a woman by the name of Jackie Cochran. Now, Jackie Cochran, for those who don't know, was a very dear friend of Amelia Earhart and was a pioneer, an aviation pioneer herself. Jackie Cochran was no joke. She was very, very uh, supremely in intelligent woman. She knew her stuff. She's also the founder of the WASP program. So of anybody out there who's an aviation historian, you've, you've heard of the WASP, and there's still a few of them out there. matter of fact, a few of those WASP are, are project guests for Chasing Your Heart. You mean the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? No, no, no. The, uh, the WASP program <laughs> was the, uh, the, the military, the, the female military, women Air Force Service pilots. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, that were in World War II. Jackie Cochran founded that program, and I think Amelia Earhart would have been immensely proud of her friend for that because that was a really, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Here's here's the thing. So they sent so FDR actually personally sent Jackie Cochran over to Japan and to 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 do specific things in Japan to kind of figure out, you know, the, the try to try to basically help out with the international relations at the time. And she was supposed to report on give an official report on what she found in Japan. And she was supposed to, you know, do a whole write up and a whole thing for FDR and for the U.S. government when she got back. That report never happened. She never did that report. She went to Japan, and she never did that report. So a lot of people believe uh, that are working the Irene Bolan hypothesis and that have, that have kind of been working it for a long time believe that Jackie Cochran actually went over there to smuggle Amelia Earhart out. And that is something that's not really too uncommon. Um, there, was no, there was no smuggling involved here, but people that are you know, in the recent news – Remember when former President Bill Clinton was sent over to get the two the, the two young women who were in, uh, in in custody over there? He was he was sent over there to negotiate their return, and uh, you know successfully did so and, and brought them back. This was a little different because it was done in secret. But think of it that way. That's sort of kind of what happened. Amelia Earhart was taken back into custody and she was repatriated back in the United States. She had been declared dead in absentia on January fifth, nineteen thirty nine. So this was five or six years after that. So Amelia Earhart could not go back to her life. For all intents and purposes, she was dead. So Amelia Earhart took that opportunity, and the people around her helped her take the opportunity to 
essentially become someone else. And she became Irene Bolum. She took this opportunity to have a new name, have a new life. And she ended up living the rest of her days um, out on the East Coast of the United States. And she never flew again. So it's one of those things where you look at it and you're on, on face value and you think it sounds like a movie. And it really kind of does sound like a movie. But I would encourage everyone out there to go to Todd Swindell's website. Just type in, just Google search Irene-Amelia.com or just Google search Irene Amelia. Start going through that website. Start going through the work that he put in there. Start looking at the forensic photo overlays, the handwriting analysis, the evidence he's contained, all of the stuff that he's gone through. Look at it without a critical eye. Just look at it as it lies. And I can promise you, when you look at that evidence, I'm not going to say you're going to be sold on it, but I'm going to promise you that you're going to have to look closer at it, that you're going to think this might actually be possible. How, do, so, they, how do they explain the DNA? Well, that's the thing. So what's really interesting about Irene Bolum is in 1970, the book Amelia Earhart Lives comes out. Joe Kloss and Joe Jervis. Well, Joe Kloss wrote it. Joe Jervis was his was his main source, and you know, basically they co-wrote it. I mean, Joe Kloss wrote it, but it's it was really a co-creation of the two Joes. And Irene Bolam actually sued them in court. It was a very public case. You can look it up online. And uh, what's really interesting about that, and she when she sued them, she said, look it, I'm not this woman, I'm not Amelia Earhart, I, I, you know, I, I want to be left alone, I'm, you know, all this other stuff. But what's really interesting about it is, and again, look at this on, on, on Todd's site, Irene Bolin was very, really enjoyed giving cryptic clues also. She'd come out and blatantly say it wasn't her, but in private interviews and things like that, she would say, well, you know, you know she would give little clues, which is really weird for someone who didn't want to be known as, as Amelia Earhart. She didn't pick off any of this, did she? No, that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the thing, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. They, she sued him in court. Uh, McGraw-Hill, which is a very famous publisher, still is. Uh, she sued McGraw-Hill. She sued Joe Jervis. She, she, she uh, sued Joe Cloth. She won. So she wins in court. Um, fair and square. Judge says, you win. We need a set of fingerprints. And she drops the case at that point. So that's that right. was why would you do that? That's very interesting. If... I've always maintained, look, I don't know if she was Amelia Earhart. I'm not going to sit here and say that she was. I'm not going to sit here and say that she wasn't. I maintain an open mind. That's kind of my role. That's my, my, my responsibility, what I'm supposed to do as sort of the, the steward of this, you know, of my project and what we're doing. But I will tell you this. If you win a case and you decide to drop it based off fingerprints, something is wrong there. I don't know if she was Earhart. I don't know if she was in on the situation and she knew what happened to Earhart ultimately. I don't know if she knew that she was executed in Japan, maybe possibly. And, you know, I don't know. She, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. But another interesting aspect of that, and you, it's a long winded way to get to your question about DNA, but, uh, but Irene Bolin was cremated and it was her ultimate will to be cremated. She did not want any remains of her body or anything like that left behind. So she made sure that her last wish was carried out and that she was, in fact, cremated. So there is no body. There is no DNA. Now, she does have a son. His, son, his son's name is Larry Heller. And ironically enough, um, if you're familiar with aviation in general, you know the name Grace McGuire. If you know Amelia Earhart, Grace McGuire is um, a very dear, you know, dear person. She's just a great, great woman. She actually recently donated uh, Muriel, which is the last Lockheed Electra tinny on the planet, to the Amelia Earhart Foundation in Natchez, Kansas. And uh, so it's the only one of its kind in the world, regardless. I mean, people claim that it's, they have L10Es. They don't. They have 10As or 12As or something that was converted, but this is a true original L10E. And so anyway, to make a long story short, Grace McGuire 
was going to fly around the world and do the, the equatorial route that Earhart did. This was after Ann Pellegrino completed her flight and all that good stuff. And who was going to be Grace McGuire's navigator? It was going to be Larry Heller, who was the son of Irene Bollum. So there's a lot of little weird coincidences there. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that she's Earhart. I, I don't know. That's not for me to decide. What I believe is irrelevant. It only matters what we can prove. It doesn't matter what we believe personally. And that's how we look at this case. So look at Todd's site. Look at all the stuff he's put out. It's a wealth of information that he's put out. He's done a fantastic job at it. And I would say, hey, you know, take a look at it. And, you know, you're going to be convinced on certain areas. Certain things are going to, certain things are going to convince you to the point where you're going to say, you're going to ask yourself, what the hell? Who was this woman? You know, she was, she was something special. Something was, something was up with this, with Irene Bollum. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if we're going to know, but I can tell you that there's too many, again, like the Buka thing, like the 200 eyewitnesses in Japanese capture, there are too many coincidences here to ignore. So it's one of those situations where we are not going to ignore it. So people might want to dismiss it. People might think it's ridiculous and that's all well and good, but we are not going to dismiss it. We're going to run with it and we're going to see what people believe and we're going to put that on trial as well. And we have some pretty knowledgeable people that are going to come forth and talk about it. And if after that is done, you still think it's hooey or you still think it's, it's ridiculous, then, hey, that's, that's up to you. <laughs> well, well said and well put. How about number yeah. five? Well, number five we've already kind of touched on, okay. but we'll circle back around. That's full circle to the conversation we've had today. That's Buka. So okay. number five is Buka. Now, Buka is, again, relatively new, but Bill Snavely is the only guy that has an aircraft. So it's really interesting for him to look at this. And again, what I really like about Bill is Bill's got a really fresh attitude to this Earhart case. A lot of people have fought tooth and nail over this, and it's gotten downright nasty in some, in some cases. I mean, it's, it's gotten really, really bad. It's very divided. There's all these different camps. And Bill Snavely comes along. He's this independent guy. He's, he's, you know, he's just doing this on his own, looking at this sort of from a 10,000-foot you know, view at the time that he started it. And now he's sort of wanting to become one of the major players. I mean, some people will say, will disagree with that. Some people that are running other hypotheses might disagree with that, and, and that's totally fine. But regardless, he's one of the major players now. This Buka thing is not going away. There's going to be an ending to it. We're going to find out. And I think that's, that's the most exciting premise here, is that we're all going to find out, is Bill Snavely right, or is he wrong? And, and what I love about Bill, and he said this not only privately to me, but he said this in media, he said this on interviews, so it's not a secret. His exact words have been, if I'm wrong, if we, if we determine that this plane is not Amelia Earhart's and I am wrong, I will be the very first person to come out and publicly say I was wrong. And that is a refreshing look at this case because people just don't do that in this Earhart case. Hey, I'm staking, he's staking a lot of his life into this. He's been studying this for 15 plus years now or whatever it's been. That could be off a little bit, but he's been studying it for a long time. He's dedicated a lot, a lot of his life to that. You don't want to turn around after 15 years and say all of that, I was wrong the whole time. I had it wrong the entire time. I wasted 15 years of my life. Bill doesn't look at it that way. Bill looks at it like, Hey, I didn't waste 15 years of my life. I found a plane. I investigated it all the way. I saw it through till it was over. I got my answer. There we go. Was it, is, it the, is it the holy grail of aviation? You know, as far as I'm concerned, 
he's he's got a 50-50 shot here because nobody across cross theory nobody has found any tangible evidence now they're going to argue that point they're going to say well of course we have we have the we have the eyewitness testimony we have the math we have the s5s we have uh, you know the aluminum patch panel we found on the on the island. We have this and that post sauce radio. Yes, that's great. That's the evidence we have. Nobody's found a plane except for Snavely, but we don't know if it's hers. So if if you discount Snavely's theory and you say he's you know he's just working on a plane right now, nobody's ever found anything tangible that would consider that would that would be considered by you know by a court let's say to be a smoking gun. There is really no official definition, a legal definition for a smoking gun. You know, as as we've come to know it, and as be uh, as it's been known in pop culture, there's no smoking gun. There's no definition for a smoking gun. It's just a piece of evidence that basically is an undisputable piece of evidence. Like for instance, uh, like a, a murder bo- a body would be a smoking gun. You know what I mean? That's obviously the case. And it, and here's here's what's interesting about about Snavely, and this is why when people sort of argue that this theory that he has is ridiculous and all that stuff, and of course they're totally entitled to that, and I, I can see where they make their points, I can understand that, but look at it this way. If you're an investigator, and let's say you're a detective and you've been called in to look at a murder scene, and you, all you all you know is someone was murdered there, and you walk around the scene and you've got handprints, and you've got you know some blood here, and it looks like, the scene, you know, looked like there was a struggle, and you... You see maybe a, a, a bullet casing or a knife or a murder weapon or something like that. And, but there's no body, right? And let's say, this, let's say this murder scene takes place in a home. And let's say a couple miles down the road, a body is found. It's nowhere near the crime scene. You have no idea how that body got there at first. But you know you got a body. If you're the investigator, what are you going to look at first? Hmm. Are you going to go look at the body? Or are you going to ignore the body and just look at the crime scene and say the body's not relevant? No, you're right. They're going to look at everything, including that body. Exactly. Now they have a so, body. Now they have a murder. Exactly. So uh, look at it. If you look at it, if you equate it to that, Bill Snavely's got a body. Now, whether or not, and I'm not, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that literally, the body right, is the plane. Right. Bill Snavely's got a body here. If we don't know how the body got all the way to Buka, we have no idea. Bill exactly. doesn't even and know. Exactly, and you alluded to that when we began, that yes, this may end up being the plane, but that still yeah. doesn't explain how it got there. Did the Japanese dump it? Was it rebuilt, yeah. the broken wing repaired, and was it flown uh, and, and crashed there? Was it dropped off a seaplane tender? So many questions to answer. It will be great yeah. if he finds out that's her plane, but it's just going to start a whole other leg of the investigation. Exactly right. So we don't know what we don't know. That's really the question. Or, you know, that's really the statement, I should say. So really, that's, that's really kind of my position on all this. I, people have, have said, look, at, you, know, you're, you're, you seem to really be a fan of Bill Snavely. Hey, I, I'm a fan of, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of Bill Snavely. I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of Dick Spink. I'm a fan of Les Kinney. I, I I like all those guys. I think what they're doing is fantastic, and they could very well be accurate. The, the, the point is we don't know. That's the point. And so people are, are, are looking at the evidence that they have, and they're staying within that particular evidential bubble, and they're not peeking outside that bubble. And it's time now 
I, I made a statement in uh, part eight of Vanish. We just put out part nine. We're going to be working on ten now. But in part eight, it's called the episode's called Trial by Trial by Jury, which is where we kind of introduce this whole concept. I made a statement in the very the opening part of the show, and the statement was, "It's time to take this case, this entire case, and burn it all down." And that's the whole point. That's what we're trying to do. Nobody knows. Nobody's got any hard tangible physical evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt their theory above the rest. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they say. Nobody has it. So when people sort of, you know, have problems with, you know, certain theories and things like that, have your problems, have your concerns. I have no problem with you having your concerns. Voice those concerns. Do as long as you do it in a respectful way, in a respectful manner that contributes something to the case then that's totally fine. I'm happy with that because by collaborating, by reaching across the aisle, by putting all the data on the table, by using inductive reasoning, by going through this process, that's the only way that we're going to figure this case out collectively. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't look at this with a business as usual approach. And that's been done for over eight decades now, and it's, res it's yielded no results. We still don't know. We still have five different theories arguing over who's right. It gets to that point where it's like, you know, what are you going to do at this point? Let's change things up. Let's come together collectively and figure this out. And someone's going to get the I told you so moment. It might be multiple people that get it, depending on who you believe. But, you know, we, we deserve to, you know, history deserves to know the answer. The general public deserves to know the answer. Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, they belong to all of us now because they belong to history. And I think it's really important that people look at this case in a different way. And that's sort of how we're trying to do this. We're trying to present this case in a brand new way and, and question people's theories, question people's evidence, because nobody really ever does. They just kind of take it all at face value. And so that's kind of been our mission since we started Banished. And, and you know, now that we're wrapping up Chasing Earhart, it's kind of all coming to, come, coming to an end here pretty soon. Now, when, and, did the, uh, when did the trial uh, sequence begin on Vanished, and how long will that continue? Yeah, so the trial sequence started on part eight. So okay. the, the series is going to go 16 episodes. So and, what we did where is— Where do they find the series? I'm sorry. To, I'm not trying to get ahead of you. No, no, that's, that's totally fine. So the series is very easily found. It's on every major podcast platform. So okay. whether you're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify— Stitcher, you, you name it. Okay. Just if you Google "Vanished Amelia Earhart" podcast, our our RSS feed is attached to Audio Boom. They do our stuff, okay. and you know we're we're found pretty easily everywhere. We're also found on on Facebook and on Twitter. We also have a really fantastic Facebook group that you're part of that you've you've talked talked into a little bit. Thank you, and I believe and, I uh, believe we've been asked to be on "Vanished" as well. Is that correct? Yes, so you are going to be chatting with us regarding the O&I files and the O&I stuff come the Japanese capture hypothesis episode, which is actually going to be coming up. I believe that's, I believe that's going to be episode 11. There's even talk, uh, we're not sure yet, but there's even talk of us splitting the Japanese capture into two separate parts because it's so robust, as oh, you yeah. know. That's going to take two at least. It's going to be difficult. So we're either going to do one four or five hour episode for that, or we're going to split it into two different episodes. We're not sure format wise how we're going to do that. I'm going to have to talk to my partner Jennifer about that and see. But that's basically kind of where we're at. So we're getting ready to put on trial the first hypothesis, which is crash and sink, 
and we're expecting some really fantastic guests to to take the witness stand, so to speak. We're going to talk to Tom Detweiler, who was largely responsible for finding the Titanic. We're going to talk to Tom Vincent of Rockwell Columns, formerly of Rockwell Columns, retired, and he's done a lot of fantastic work with Nauticos. And we're going to talk to Dana Timmer, who led the first deep water search in 1999. Um, you know, we're going to we might bring Leo Bellarts back to the stand. It's possible. We'll see. So we're going to be doing a lot of that stuff for Japanese capture. We're going to extend some offers for some folks that are going to be very important and very crucial to that to that particular case. And uh, we're going to keep going. And it's going to end, I believe, with 16 episodes, 16 parts. And that's kind of where we're going to go. So if for some reason, you know, we need to split an episode or something like that, it might extend a part. But my original vision was to go to 16. The first seven episodes, we're going to lead all the way up from going to start with Earhart's birth in Atchison, Kansas, and kind of what makes a legend, and go from all that process all the way up to Part 7, which talked about her takeoff from Hawaii and her ground loop incident in Hawaii and how that changed and shifted the whole world flight. And then Part 8 was introduction of trial by jury, introduction of Jennifer Taylor, who's my my uh, my partner in the series, and our, she's a criminal defense attorney uh, down in Texas, and she's going to be cross-examining all of the people that we actually bring, including you. So she'll cross-examine you as well. Uh, after I finish questioning. So I'm basically going to present all the different evidence sort of in the same vein that I have been for Chasing Earhart. And uh, the only difference between that and this is every witness that takes the stand is going to be cross-examined by our, our defense attorney, which is going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, that is going to be very exciting. It's great. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's all in fun. We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to make anybody look bad or anything like that. It's all... It's all done professionally and, and in fun, and it's it's a mock trial, of course, but it's it's really sort of a different way to look at this whole thing, and it's a way that's that's never been attempted before, and so far it's it's been the response has been really really overwhelming, really positive for it, really. I think what would be neat is to do a live show when the trials are over, and get the listeners' opinions on which of the theory holds the most water. Yeah, we're actually talking about that. We're talking about possibly doing a follow-up, like a like an after the trial, um, you know, episode or part that will be live. We might even you might even stream it live. We'll see uh, where myself and Jennifer will sit down with you know an audience possibly, or just you know people that want to join via like YouTube Live or something and post questions in chat. You know, we're we're figuring all that out. But yeah, that should be a lot of fun. It's just this has been a, a hell of a ride. <laughs> and it's it's uh yeah you moved out up now our listeners i think know uh based on the earlier uh interview with you that you moved you you and your wife came out from california to assume this project director job uh out in kansas at uh at the home place and now museum for amelia Earhart. and you've been a, a ramrod in terms of getting this all uh, organized and and getting that on the on the internet map and I just yeah thank you for all your efforts and everything that you've done to help all of us try and find a solution and and make history right. Well, this has been a pleasure, John. I, I you know, look, I consider you a dear friend. It's, it's always great to talk with you, and, and I'm happy to come back on any time, and I look forward to, to presenting the O&I information with you, uh, alongside of you, uh, on the Japanese Capture episode coming up soon. We'll be well-researched, and we'll have our P's and Q's together. All right. I hope so. She's a, she's a tiger, so I hope so. <laughs> we'll be ready. Thank you so much, Chris. Great talking to you. Yeah, you as well. We'll talk soon. Okay, same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Hello, 1001 fans. What a great interview with Chris Williamson, the project director for Chasing Earhart. 
and as you can tell, he's dedicated to getting to the truth behind the Amelia Earhart disappearance and giving every hypothesis a chance to be heard. The disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on the last leg of their record-breaking around-the-world flight in 1937 is still the greatest aviation mystery of the 20th century. We'll be busy researching everything the ONI, or Office of Naval Intelligence, knew about Amelia prior to and after their disappearance July 2nd, 1937, including some very unusual documents and photos declassified by the Office of Naval Intelligence and found in the National Archives that lend evidence to the crash and capture theory and the possibility that her last flight included a photo intelligence gathering mission over fortified Japanese islands that were preparing for an all-out assault on not only Pearl Harbor, but a great portion of the Pacific. This episode will be an early bird release at Prime Cuts, which is our new 1001 show which we've placed at patreon.com forward slash 1001 stories network for our subscribers to enjoy. It'll include early bird episodes like this one and exclusive episodes that we're making just for Prime Cuts and just for our subscribers. So if you have a chance, get on over there. We'll leave a link in the show notes. It's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you all for listening. Send us a review when you're able to. Please tell a friend, and we'll see you soon.